0: Welcome back to the podcast Unbinding the Bible. This is episode number 70, Revelation. How long, O Lord? And in this episode, we're going to look at Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, which is the opening of the fifth seal of the scroll that the Lamb is given authority to open. And what we're going to find out is the voice of some martyrs who are echoing many of the Psalms and the cries of God's people throughout history regarding injustice and wondering what God is going to choose to do about it. And so we're going to see the connection this has between the colliding kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and how the unfolding of judgments in this world actually lead to injustice on the part of god's people and this is nothing new you have seen this from day one if you have been reading through the old testament reading through the new testament and pay much attention at all to history you see that colliding of kingdoms actually does result in the loss of life but we're going to allow our central and centering vision of the lamb as god himself on the throne to help us understand the cry of these martyrs and then why the Lord God Himself offers them the encouragement that He does. And so let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, I would like just to read the three verses that describe for us what happens when the fifth seal is open. Here's what Revelation 6 verse 9 says. who were to be killed as they themselves had been? Now, as we jump into the contents of this fifth seal, I do want to point out how it is um, quite a bit different, at least on the surface, from the first four seals and what we saw. Last episode looking at the first four seals. The first four seals, the first four trumpet judgments, which we'll see later, the first four bowl judgments are all judgments that are actually poured out on the earth. And um, what we find now in this fifth seal is something a little bit separate from earth. Uh, What we find um, is a reference to the souls um, of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now that phrase, for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, is actually used in Revelation 1 to describe John himself. Um, He said he was banished to the Isle of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's the exact same word for witness. You know, if a witness is called to the stand in a courtroom today, they are giving testimony. They are giving testimony. Uh, claim that what they saw or heard or or something is in fact true. And of course, this is what the church is always called to be, or those who stand on the word of God and bear witness, um, which is ultimately what we're called to be as lampstands, um, to that truth. And of course, here, these martyrs are doing so um, as a result of the word of God and the testimony that they had borne or the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it's important to just point out, I I think this probably has something to do with why revelation is often so misunderstood, at least in our culture. And that is that as Christianity plays itself out in the West, uh, particularly in America where I'm from and where this podcast is originating from, we, we rarely see persecution of such intensity that actual suffering and death takes place because of someone's witness. Um, And yet I think one of the powerful reasons of reading Revelation in this way is that this really does embrace a global and an international way of understanding the book, which even in Revelation itself, we are meant to focus our attention in an international way. And if you read the news and look at places like Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and even China or South Korea you will not have to look far to find actual christians suffering unto death as a result of their faith in jesus or their testimony in jesus and their stance on the word of god and so this is something that's incredibly relevant and incredibly pertinent and so as we looked at um you know last week with the first four seals and this week as we begin the opening of the fifth seal I actually want us to understand judgments or the idea of judgment or justice or punishment or those kinds of things, to understand it the way John understands it. Because Revelation, again, is a book that centers around the central and centering vision of the lamb who was slain in the midst of the throne with the one seated on the throne, and that that God rules through the lamb and that the lamb reveals to us who God actually is and the way that he chooses to rule the world. And so if we want to embrace that, what we have to recognize is that that's typically not the way people imagine judgments in connection with God. Um, Typically, if you're anything like me, when you think, oh, God sends a judgment, it's almost as if God is standing in his place and he is simply deliberately inflicting punishment or wounds or judgments, I guess for that, for that type of a term, onto those who dwell on the earth. And so, but I want us to, to allow Jesus and allow the lamb and allow revelation to redefine for us the way we think this way. And so um, I'd like to start out because I think Richard Bauckham offers a really helpful insight in this way, just something to keep in mind as we read. But here's what Richard Bauckham says in his little book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation. God is not directly depicted as judge. The living creatures who belong to God's throne commission the judgments and angels carry them out. God's glory, power, and holiness are manifested in smoke, thunderstorm, and earthquake, the traditional accompaniments of theophany. But God himself is not seen or heard. Even when John refers to the great voice, which at the pouring out of the seventh bowl declares the completion of the judgment, it is done, he adopts the kind of indirectness with which Jewish writers commonly avoided the anthropomorphism of reference to God's own voice. The voice is not said to be God's, but simply comes from the throne. Thus, the way John portrays the judgments is as far as possible from the image of a human despot wielding arbitrary power. Now, this point is of the greatest importance when we remember that John's purpose is certainly not to compare the divine sovereignty in heaven with the absolute power of human rulers on earth. Quite the contrary. His purpose is to oppose the two. Absolute power on earth is satanic in inspiration Destructive in its effects, idolatrous in its claim to ultimate loyalty. Though it claims divinity, it is utterly unlike the divine sovereignty. Thus it would subvert the whole purpose of John's prophecy if his depiction of the divine sovereignty appeared to be a projection into heaven of the absolute power claimed by human rulers on earth. Now, what Bauckham is getting at here, I think, kind of ties back in with what I tried to present last week regarding the first four seals being opened and the conquest and bloodshed leading to famine leading to death versus the way the lamb operates, which is conquest, right, conquering bloodshed his own leading to hunger and thirst being satisfied, which ultimately leads to life. And so the fact that we see these judgments happening, I do not want you to read this primarily as, hey, God is ready to judge the world. The end is coming. God's going to inflict his punishment and his discipline and his anger and his hatred on all of these sinful, rebellious people. That is not what is happening in the book of Revelation. We could assume that if we decided to delete chapters one through five from our reading of the book and simply jump in with chapter six, but we're good readers of Revelation. We're not going to do that. We're not going to disengage from what we read before in order to begin with chapter six and move forward. No, we're going to use the central and centering vision of the lamb who was slain in order to help us interpret how judgment now works. And here's Michael Gorman in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly. An outstanding book, by the way, that you should buy and devour. But if you won't, I'll read you significant portions of it and you can get it from me. Here's what he says. Revelation presents Christ as the lion who reigns as the lamb, not in spite of being the lamb. This means also that Revelation presents God as the one who reigns through the lamb, not in spite of the lamb. Lamb power is God power, and God power is lamb power. If these claims are untrue, then Jesus is not in any meaningful way a faithful witness. More importantly, the book's central affirmation that Christ is worthy of divine worship is incoherent because Christ is fundamentally different from and other than God. Now, all of this means that judgment by God and Christ in Revelation must be an expression of divine identity that is not in conflict with lamb power. The judgment of the world originates in its failure to believe and be faithful to this God. When it creates its own deities, it suffers the natural consequences of deifying the non-divine. In this sense, judgment proceeds from the throne of God and from the Lamb because the rejection of the divine gift of life carries with it inherent deadly consequences. It is not, therefore, because imperial power and Lamb power coexist in God that wrath descends from God's throne, but because when humans reject Lamb power, they experience it as imperial disaster. Disordered desire, death, and destruction. Now, between Richard Baucom and Michael Gorman, these two guys are exactly correct. And this is a reversal. It's a reversal of the way we typically tend to think of judgment. And I would like to submit to you that, again, it's a reversal in this sense because we have the wrong definitions of good and evil. Jesus absorbed into himself the evil of this world and thereby put it to death, not violently, but by self-sacrificially laying down his life and taking punishment that was not his so that the rest of the world could be set free. And this reversal, the same reversal that Jesus's friends on the road to Emmaus had to come face to face with, is an empowering vision that reorients everything. And so if I could just repeat for just a second, because I think it's so powerful when Gorman says this, he says, um, oh goodness, I lost my place. He says, the judgment of God and Christ in revelation must be an expression of divine identity that is not in conflict with lamb power. So when the world creates its own deities or let's just say when it idealizes um, nationalism or it idealizes the benefits of government or it idealizes, you know, pushing, you know, its own greatness, right? It makes itself equal to a God. It suffers the natural consequences of deifying that which is not divine. And so in this sense, judgment proceeds from the throne of God and from the lamb because the rejection of the divine gift of life carries with it inherent deadly consequences. So then Gregory Stevenson, in his book, A Slaughtered Lamb, helps us connect that view of God's judgments and applies it directly to what we see going on in the opening of the fifth seal. Here's what Stevenson says. The first four seals contain no specific language of judgment or wrath, unlike the fifth and sixth seals, In fact, the point of the fifth seal is that it is not yet the time for judgment. Secondly, the first four seals identify no specific recipient of these actions with no mention of the inhabitants of the earth, the followers of the beast, or any other specific being on um, any group being on the receiving end. These first four seals leave the impression that conquest, war, famine, and death are indiscriminate events affecting both the faithful and the unfaithful Stevenson goes on, ironically, God's immediate reply to the saints plea for vengeance is that it is not the wicked who will suffer initially, but the righteous. He answers their question of how long with a little longer. Now this statement indicates that one reason why God does simply not do away, does not simply do away with the suffering of his people, or at the very least stamp out any opposition that would threaten the faithful is because the suffering of the saints serves a larger purpose within God's design. It is important to note that the suffering of these saints is not the suffering of a devastating illness or a tragic accident. This is the suffering born from faithful witness. It is the suffering of the slaughtered lamb. Within the divine plan, the suffering that results from faithful witness is a primary means by which God challenges the kingdom of the world with a different kind of power and a different conception of victory. This is really the heart of what is going on here. You have four seals that are opened and conquest, bloodshed, famine, and death ensue. And as a result of that, sometimes Christians are caught up in the mix Sometimes those who are faced with their own lives and the crumbling of the world around them because of their faithful witness to Jesus do in fact suffer death. Many of the letters to the churches promised conquest and promised conquering and victory for those who would remain faithful unto death. And here for the first time, and it will not be the last in the book of Revelation, those who were faithful unto death are given voice to some concerns that are on their mind. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge our, you know, avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're asking a question and they're asking a question that was answered and asked quite a few times in the Psalms. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In Psalm 13, we, the psalmist write, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 79 verse 5, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Psalm 80 verse 4, O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Psalm 89, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Psalm 90, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Psalm 94:3: O oh Lord, how long shall the wicked how long shall the wicked exult? Now it's amazing that, that these martyrs, these, those who have borne witness to the faithfulness of Jesus in their own lives, even unto death, are crying out. They want to know, when are you going to judge, and what are you going to avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, this is not a petty, feel bad for them, calling down out of heaven now, the cries of, God, yeah, you're really going to get our enemies. No, this is a genuine cry for justice. Real injustice has happened here. Real followers of Jesus have been hated by the world in the same way that Jesus himself was hated by the world and put to death for it. And yet Jesus' faithful witness is defined as faithful precisely because he did not back down from the truth and chose to love his enemies even unto death. And that's the pattern of the Christ that has been referred to throughout the first several chapters of Revelation. The Christians, the followers of the Lamb, the saints, are being exhorted to follow in the footsteps of their Savior who bore witness to the truth of his father's love for the world and was rejected and hated by the religious leaders because of it." And so the image that we get with the fifth seal is also part of this judgment that has come out onto the world. And yet, as I've continued to repeat and will say so more, the point of the scroll, the contents of this scroll, is God's unfolding plan for how he will both judge and save the world. And so the martyrs themselves are a key ingredient to what God plans to do. And what we are shown when we listen to their cry is that they are under the altar, there, there's an altar that throughout the Old Testament time, both in the tabernacle and then later the, the temple, there were actually two altars present. Um, there was one altar in the courtyard, which was sort of outside the main gathered worship space. And this was for the offering of slain animals, um, which you had to offer with the priest's help in order to be able to come in a little bit closer into your worship of the Lord. And then there was another altar within the holy place, which was the altar of incense immediately before the veil, before the curtain, which let you into the most holy place, which only the high priest could enter. Here though, John sees just one altar, the altar as he calls it throughout Revelation, which combines the purposes of both altars simultaneously, the altar of sacrifice and the altar of incense. Now we've already seen in chapter five, that incense is closely connected to the prayers of the saints in Revelation. And we will see this same incense symbolic of the church's prayers rising from the altar again in chapter 8. But this altar will also witness the shedding of blood and the slaughter of Jesus's martyrs in in Revelation chapter 16. So both senses are in view here in verses 9-11. through And these martyrs, those who have been faithful unto death in their witness of Jesus himself are crying out for the Sovereign Lord, holy and true, to do something about the fact that they have unfairly been put to death as a result of their testimony and as a result of their witness. And so here's what's very, very powerful and beautiful about what Revelation is doing here. Revelation does not turn a blind eye to the fact that injustices are in fact happening all over the world. And I do think that Christians ought to be among the first people to stand up and to say what might need to be done about that. And yet it's interesting to notice that what that doesn't mean is that we try to create a society where this never happens. What this means is that we, are, we, we go with those who suffer. We place ourselves in the place where they are, where their suffering takes place, and we try to be with them and try to bring them out of it in those exact places. And yet to do that quite literally does mean to put ourselves in harm's way in order to see justice take place on the earth. And when a person's life comes to an end or they lose a significant part of their selves as a result of doing this, there is a genuine cry in the hearts of people who truly want God's honor and truly want the best for other people. There's a deep burning desire within their beings to know When are things going to be set right? When do we witness the crucifixion of the Son of God Himself? When do we see Him come back to life? When is this happening? And in our time right now, to be a faithful witness to Jesus does not guarantee that tomorrow we will see the fruit of our labor. We very well may have to wait a significant time longer. And yet the Lord offers them a promise. He doesn't say that I want you to, you know, hey, it's going to be fine. We're going to take care of it. No, what, what he actually points out to them is something really strange. Um, he says he gives them a white robe and tells them to rest just a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed in the same way that they have been. And this is not necessarily the answer that maybe you or I would expect to hear, but it's a very, very powerful and an incredibly helpful answer. And that is that the lamb will return to avenge his witness's blood just as soon as the very last mortar lays down his or her life. And one of the reasons why I think that's so significant is again, as we've already been talking about, this is the book of Revelation isn't merely for us to understand that in the end, God's gonna punish everybody who's done what's wrong. No, God's plan involves the way in which the Christians are going to play a vital role in bringing in the nations. And the picture that Revelation is portraying for us is that one of the most effective ways that we can bring the truth of who Jesus is to the world is when we personally, as the church, embody the self-sacrificial, compassionate, dying, if necessary, love for our enemies. That is a truth and a reality that is needed throughout the history of the church this is one of the main ways in which God brings salvation to the nations. And I might repeat here myself, but sadly, that idea is almost entirely lost on the Christian church in this country. The idea that the Lord's Promises and the Lord's ways and the Lord's blessings would, in fact, come to the world through our suffering. It's almost as if Christians in this culture today try their hardest to prevent any type of discomfort in their society at all from anyone and want to stand on rights as American citizens to guarantee that every law that's ever pushed in this country gives them every bit of the freedom they need to continue to be a Christian without anybody bothering them at all. And if you were to ask me, I would see that as one of the main ways in which the kingdom of this world has a bit of a foothold in the kingdom of God as evidenced in his church in America is that wanting to pass laws and wanting to guard your freedom and wanting no one to ever tell you otherwise are the ways we are trying to very simply avoid any difficulty that might come as a result of following the lamb. And yet to follow him may lead to death. It may not. It may lead to property rights battles. It may lead to somebody cutting you off in traffic. It may lead to hate mail. It may lead to nasty things said about you on social media. You know, any form of death could be encompassed, particularly as we are talking about actual death. But what these martyrs are offered is a promise. They are given a white robe and they are told to rest just a little longer. It's going to be a little more time. My plan for saving the world is not yet finished. And I'm going to need others who follow in your footsteps in order to bring it about. And so it's an encouragement. It's a comfort to people who have lost everything for the sake of Jesus, knowing that that was exactly what God intended for their lives. In fact, there are many more people in this world who will need to follow in the martyr's footsteps in order to continue to see God's plans and purposes for the world unfold. But the white garments that he gives them, white is simply an image for purity and for victory and for having conquered. And we read even in Revelation 3 to the church in Sardis, it says that you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now that's all the time we're going to take for this week's episode of the podcast, but I did want to take this opportunity, especially at the end of this kind of an episode, to make you aware of a very powerful and very relevant organization called the Voice of the Martyrs, which you can find on the internet by just going to persecution.com. But this organization was be, uh, began in the late 1960s of a Romanian pastor by the name of Richard Wurmbrand who was tortured in an attempt to cave to communist Russia and to deny his faith in Jesus. And when he refused, he went through um, an eventual uh, 14 years worth of torture. And when he was finally released, his friends and family brought him to the safest place they knew how. And after listening to his story and him recording the events of that story into a short little book called Tortured for Christ, he and his family and his friends all decided the world needs to know this. Christians in the West need to know this. They need to know what is going on, not just from first century biblical times, but in the 20th century, in the 21st century, now in various parts of the world where Christians are under tremendous attack as a result of their faithfulness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, just like we see in the book of Revelation. And so I cannot recommend uh, the resources from Voice of the Martyrs to you highly enough Um, I would love it if I knew somebody from listening to this podcast just went to persecution.com and subscribed to a free newsletter or was able to connect with ways of writing letters to Christians who have been locked up and thrown in prison. There are stories of pastors in their congregations who've had their churches bombed or burned to the ground only to then secretly gather in someone's home to continue to worship the lamb who was slain. Um, under the cover of secrecy and so the stories are sensational but they're not just stories they're real lives and real families that are suffering because of their love for Jesus and watching God transform communists and transform prison guards and transform despotic rulers into laying down all of their arms and deciding they too have never ever witnessed the love of anyone to this great extent. Jesus really must be the real God. And it's fascinating to watch the stories and to participate in any way that you can. And so I'll put a link in the show notes to this episode. But as I said, could not encourage you highly enough to check out their resources, to begin to pray for persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ all across the world. We'll have more to say about the Voice of the Martyrs in upcoming episodes. But for now, that's all for this week's episode. Talk to you next week.